Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome back to my favourite time of the week. And I'm very lucky to have the uh, late Lord Mayor of London, Peter Eslin. And Peter has had an incredible career. I'm just going to read out some of the things Peter's involved in at the moment. Chair of Future.Now, which we're going to talk about in the second part. Late Lord Mayor of the City of London Corporation. A non-executive independent member of the Audit Committee of the Treasury. Founder patron of Onside Youth Zone a trustee for Trust for the London Institute. Um, we're going on then to trustee at Morden College, governor of King Edward's Whitley, uh, in the Worshipful Company of Educators, a court assistant to the Worshipful Company of Ironmongers, uh, junior warden in the uh, Worshipful Company of Chartered Accountants. And then we go back on to the days when Peter and I met at Barclays, uh, where you were a CFO at Barclays and have been a senior advisor for some years with them. And, and there's a variety of things in your time as a partner at Deloitte as well. Peter, it's, it's one heck of a career. <laughs> <laughs> you, you said to me earlier when we were chatting that you, how you divided those different things up. Like, just, do you want to just briefly explain how you divide up? What's well, going? today, I mean, my, my world largely revolves around four pillars, sort of family and, and the personal side. Um, secondly, my continuation of my civic uh, career, so having been late Lord Mayor, one continues uh, yeah. uh, on in that regard. Uh, thirdly, my business career, um, we all need to sort of, you know, put some food on the table. So, I mean, doing it both for, for sustenance, but also I actually enjoy quite a lot of what I do, both at the Treasury uh, and I'm sort of transitioning from Barclays to another uh, uh, institution at the moment. Um, and then fourthly, um, and arguably what really ignites my passion is around sort of inclusion and particularly whether it's Trust for London um, or Future.Now or Onside Youth Zones, those areas where you can use your skills and help make a difference. Yeah, we'll talk about that in, in part two in the extra bit. But next, really, the interesting thing I have uh, from you is who inspired you? I mean, here you are, you know, we're similar ages, but you, you've filled your life already and continue to do so. You're accelerating, not slowing down. Um, who was it that inspired you all those years ago? Where did, where did it come from? So I, my mother was ill for quite a while and then died when I was quite young, so I went to a boarding school. And uh, that obviously create, created a sort of a home environment. Um, but I was fortunate enough to sort of thrive in it to, and I became head boy. And I met uh, the then Lord Mayor of London, Sir Kenneth Cork, who, um, on meeting him, you know, sort of quick chat, said, well, you know, what are you going to do after school? Uh, and I actually had to admit to him I hadn't really got any idea. I was good at maths, not very good at languages, liked a bit of science. So he said, well, why don't you become like an accountant? Mm -hmm. And uh, why not? Because he was an accountant. Um, so I did actually go into accountancy. Um, but cheekily, while we were having the conversation, I also said to him, how does one get your job? And, uh, he and how said, old were you then? <laughs> I was 17. 17. So, uh, so he said, well, maybe one day you'll be Lord Mayor. But he invited me up to Mansion House for a cup of tea. So about three or four weeks later, I did. 
And, and in some ways, it was that seed that sort of sits there and sort of gnaws away mm. um, in a positive sense. Yeah, so um, he was definitely one of the first people who yeah. sort of inspired me. And, and along with inspiration comes humility and uh, modesty. And we, of course, ego is the enemy. We can get carried away with all the titles and the roles and things we do. But keeping your feet planted firmly in the ground. We were chatting earlier about you know the mistakes we've both made. And yeah. Gosh, I've made, I think, probably way more than you've made. But... But as a leader, as you were growing up, what, what particular moments stuck with you where, where you weren't quite getting your leadership style right? You weren't a truly inspiring leader that yeah. you are now. And, and how did that shape who you are now? Well, first and foremost, I mean, we don't stop learning. So I mean, I continue to make mistakes. And, and I think having people around you who are prepared to tell you when you're making mistakes yeah, is really important. Truth tellers. Um, but a chap called Ian McCusker, who was a partner I worked for in Deloitte at the time, um, sat down with me when I was a, a young manager and you know he, he fundamentally said look you're ambitious you've got a lot of skill but at times you've got too much of it in the wrong places and you, you, you know you're at risk of not taking people with you and if you really want to manage and lead you know managing is about fine getting people to do tasks but leading is about inspiring people and if you really want to succeed and you, therefore you really want to lead you've got to be much more cognizant of, of that element of EQ, as we would call it today. Yeah. And that's really sat with me throughout my life. I mean, I would say, you know, I'm naturally still quite highly task-orientated. I've probably got more of, of different sides of the brain, whichever way around it is. But surrounding yourself with people who've got the skills that you don't and the perceptions that you don't, I yeah. think, is a very, very important lesson. And also, I'm, I'm reminded there was, it was Ian McCluskey, you said? Ian McCluskey, yeah. McCluskey. And how important it is for, for people who are watching this um, video now to remember as leaders, don't forget that you need to reach down to the people that you're leading and say, look, you could be really good and do this bit, but work yeah. on this skill. Because yeah. uh, he had a huge impact. Yeah. Look, thank you. Here you yeah. are. Um, and all of them listening yeah. mustn't forget the impact they can make, the shadow yeah. they cast. And, and finally, um, what would be your, your sort of top tips uh, to, to, for people to be more inspiring leaders? What would you share? So I, I have a personal adage, which is um, ask for forgiveness, not permission. And it partly comes about through being a naughty boy, you know, sort of wanting to sort of go out there and experiment. And I, and I do think that we in our, are in society today where we risk, and you know, I use the word deliberately, we risk actually de-risking too much and so how do we encourage people to take appropriate risk you know use judgment consult with others but actually take appropriate risk and push boundaries push boundaries for yourself mm. but also for others around you in a way that you know you don't just cut them off if they get it wrong you know you 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 nurture and encourage but if we don't take that risk i don't think we we really fully develop ourselves mm. um and consequently, so it is that balance. It's not. It's not being. Um, it's not being cavalier at yeah. one end of the spectrum, and yeah. it's not being so cautious. I mean, there are times, obviously, if, if the scale of the, what you're dealing with is, is has monumental impact, then of course you're going to be far more cautious. Um, so, so often, you know, if you see an email that comes in and you don't like it, don't respond to it. Sleep on it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because yeah, you have in, instinctive yeah, reaction. Yeah. But it is. It, but it is push yourself. It, it's but. But push yourself where there's that real purpose. And I think as we grow older, some people are lucky to have it younger. But as you really start to understand yourself as an individual and, and what motivates you and your purpose, 
you know, actually take some of that risk, use some of your skills um, and, and take that forward. Great. Well, Peter, thank you for your Pleasure. time. And, and once again, congratulations on, on your year as the Lord Mayor of London, a huge achievement by anybody's standards and all the other things you're doing. Thank it's you. It's been a real pleasure, pleasure. seeing you again. Very thank, thank you very much. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome back to our Inspiring Leadership Extra. We're on with Peter Estlin, the uh, late Lord Mayor of London. And um, Peter, we, we're going to go on and talk a bit about your your life and your early life, um, because we, we share the tragedy of both of us losing our parents. Um, my father killed your, your mother dying when you were 15. With that kind of upbringing and, and, and what you went through, tell us a, a bit about that and how it shaped you, really. So, I mean, my mother was ill sort of with what is now kidney disease um, during many, much of my sort of teenage and, and earlier years. My father was in the Navy, so I uh, yeah. spent time staying with my grandparents, staying with sort of neighbours. Um, but that really wasn't sustainable uh, as one sort of really got into sort of uh, school age and my mother was spending uh, more and more time in hospital. So I ended up going to a boarding school, which um, actually had been set up by the City of London four or five hundred years right. ago uh, and was very much called well it's King Edward's Whitley so uh, when it was set up as Bribe Royal Hospital back in 1553 it was set up as an orphanage for the city mm. um, I mean in today's world it's much more a microcosm of society it's got children who've been orphans but also those from disadvantaged backgrounds and some fee paying you know it's a whole blend um, so anyway I went, went there and it, I would say that a combination of both uh, living with um, you know, my grandparents, sort of neighbours, being at that boarding school. I mean, that has quite a mm. significant impact, I think, on who you are and both where you're fortunate, but also where, you know, you see elements of poverty. And, and, and did it make you, do you think, more resilient to get on and be sort of make things happen yourself? I mean, what, how did it shape you as a I character? do. I think, you know, I think, and, and many of us, I mean, you explained yourself. I mean, I think it, it created a sense of independence, um, because, you know, particularly your mother, if your mother's not around, you know, you, you end up drawing on, on your inner reserves, which, so the independence was there. And I think the resilience to cope with, with shock uh, mm. and issues, I remember failing some of my O-levels, um, um, albeit I'd take them too early, which was another thing probably shouldn't do. But anyway, I remember doing that and that was like, whoa, you know, you sort of <laughs> suddenly think, right, bit of a wake up call. Bit of a wake up call. Um, but, you know, you bounce back. Um, and I do think, you know, learning to learning to be resilient. Your know, life isn't perfect. Things are going to go wrong. Either you push yourself and you fall over, or you know things come at you from left field and don't yeah. work out. I think those are important skill sets to sort of develop. Yeah, and and of course, uh, you're a, you're a, a huge character in every sense. Six foot five, um, and you know strong and powerful individual. Was that the case when you were younger? Were you quite tall and big for your age, or did you grow later? No, I mean, I was, I remember, you know, one of those old school photographs, and I remember in the first form, so that would have been about 11, um, they didn't really know what to do with me, because I think I was well over five foot at, at the age of 11. Uh, and so there's the sort of the row of pupils and this sort of this spike. Uh, <laughs> and it, you do, you do get picked on, you know, for being too tall. And I suppose, yeah, the, the risk of, of being pulled out. But in the short term, you sort of develop an ability to cope with it. I think later on, how does the how does that skill set change? Um, yeah. You know, I'm an imposing figure, 
uh, and that can be quite frightening for people. Yeah. Um, you sort of my, maybe my inner being isn't as confident as my outer being. Yeah. Um, because so that because that can come across as quite dominant and yeah. quite you know because you, yeah. you've got you're on a mission yeah. you've got a quite a clear value set and things you want to do and you have a clear vision in these different organisations you're working in, but I think for the the less confident they might feel somewhat intimidated and yeah over the years perhaps I, I do and I think I mean and whether it's through those factors but certainly I mean I've got more of a directive style of management. Um, uh, albeit now I think, you know, I, I'm much more aware of the ability to draw people in through, you know, listening and... and coach and, approach. And coach yeah. approach, exactly, yeah. um, and bridging skills. Um, but but at the same time, um, you know, I'm still eager, I'm still ambitious, and, and that, that sort of dominance. And people who get to know me know they can push against it. But if people don't know me, they think, well, you know, they can sort yeah. of react adversely. Uh, and you need to be aware of that, I think. And where do you think that, that real drive and ambition came from? I mean, you were head boy at the school when you yeah. met the Lord Mayor that you talked about in the early part. Uh, where did this drive and ambition come from? I mean, to be honest, I don't really know. I mean, part of it was, um, was I think, partly proving to my father yeah. that, you know, and that ability of I can succeed. Yeah. Um, that, so that competitive streak sort of came in quite early on yeah. and, and hasn't gone away. I mean, I'm still very competitive. Yeah, we're just uh, staying, with, staying with fathers. It's interesting you triggered in me. I remember doing the Cyprus double mountain marathon when I was with the Scots Guards. Uh, and I was partly up a hill and, and the guys behind me were in a team of three. And we were, we were on to do quite well on day one of the two days. And, and we're all tired. So we're walking up this slope, quite a steep slope. And, and I suddenly got this sort of image of my father. What would he say to me? And like, you know, come on, you can do it. And I grabbed the two of them by the front of their shirts and I grabbed them. We're running. Okay, okay, we'll run, we'll run. And, and I did, did it for him. But actually, I remember some years later um, going through some therapy after the tragic breakup of my first marriage where the th therapist, you know, said, what are you, why are you doing it for? I mean, you know, I'm doing it to honour my father. And he's and she said, well, look, why not do it just for yourself? You know, it doesn't have to be. Well, I think that's where it probably changed for me. I mean, in a sense of, um, so after my mother died, there was a sense of, you know, what would she have said? You know, how can I, how can I sort of, uh, it was partly live in her memory in the sense of actually mm. do something that's rewarding. Yeah. Um, but then I think you do it because actually it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And that sense of purpose starts to grow in you. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you, you try a few different things. I mean, whether it's living abroad or, you know, different styles, etc. Um, I remember, I certainly remember, um, uh, in fact, I've been offered a job in, uh, in, um, in Hong Kong. I'd only been married a few years. I was thinking, I don't know how my wife's going to cope with this. Um, so um, anyway, so I went home and she literally, she immediately said, um, do you need a gin and tonic? <laughs> so, I said, so I said, well, what did you say? And she said, well, you need to talk about something, don't you? And I said, yeah, wow. I've been very perceptive. Yeah. Anyway, so I said to her, I've been offered this job in Hong Kong. What do you think? And she just walked out. Came back about three or four or five minutes later. She'd literally written a whole series of conditions. She said, well, if you agree to those, I'll go to the <laughs> <laughs> Now, that, that's interesting. Tell, tell us about your wife. and Because and, you've been Lord Mayor, and it's a hugely all-consuming job. Um, 365 days of the year, you're full on, in demand and at the beck and call everybody else. But you need her support and you needed her support. And she was very supportive. So, so tell, tell us a bit about that. 
So you're right. I mean, I, I got inspired in many ways that C got set you know, back in my teens to, to be Lord Mayor. And, and certainly over the last decade or so, um, the reality of that started to become a real possibility, uh, both in terms of getting elected, well, actually going into the livery and getting more heavily involved in that, and then getting elected as an alderman back at the end of 2013. But for me, it was sort of a, arguably, it was a lifetime's ambition. Yeah. And, and, and building blocks have been put in place, as I said, through the livery, through being an alderman, uh, and really sort of working at that. But as we, as we approached the Shrievalty, so being sheriff of the City of London, um, it was sort of a wake-up call for my wife that she could be involved and engaged. Uh, and she became a little nervous to start with. And so she got, I encouraged her to join the livery and started to encourage her to sort of some of the stepping stones. And I think it would be fair to say that when we started the mayoralty just over a year ago, she was very nervous. Mm. And uh, by the end of it, with the work she'd been doing with sepsis, uh, engaging with other people, she's really got a huge amount out of it. Mm. Uh, But uh, so it's that journey, it's taking people with you. Uh, And it was a very difficult balance because it was something I wanted to do uh, and consequently was pushing ahead. But I was conscious that I needed to take her with me and my children, yeah. um, albeit they're, they're adults. What, what age are they now? Well, they're 22, 24 and 27. Yeah, similar. But they're sort of, you know. But for Lindy, I mean, it was it was coaching her both. I think she enjoyed the Shrievalty. She didn't have to do any speeches, like one. Did quite a few more as Lady Mayoress. So, as I said, it, it, it's it's recognising, again, that I needed her. Yeah. And therefore, I had to invest in her. Yeah. She, she was signing up as well as you. Yeah, she was. On this but journey. she didn't know it. And actually, that was part <laughs> of the challenge. And that's the issue with vision, that actually, if, if you expose your ideas too fully to people, it comes back to that smothering, you know, the, the, height, the height dominance. You, you, you can see where you need to get to. But if you lay all that out to people who aren't there yet, that comes across as overpowering too much. So it it, it sounds a bit sort of disingenuous, and I don't mean it in that sense, but it is a question of you've got to take people with you at the pace they can go, maybe just a little bit faster to, to give them a bit of sense of momentum. But if you overpower them with where you want to get to, you lose them. You lose them. The thing about you know power and and um, uh, dominance and sort of leadership, how have you over the years managed the ego? Because it's a, it's a real problem for all leaders, male and female, when they get to very prestigious roles that you've done. You were a partner in Deloitte at thirty one. Um, you know, you were a very influential CFO in Barclays at a very key time for Barclays. You've done a whole range of different uh, amazing work. Uh, in the charity sector and in the livery sector. I'd like to talk about livery later and how that's still relevant for today, in fact, more so than before. Uh, how did you manage your ego? And, and when did you sort of go, look, sorry, guys, I, I got that wrong, you know, or even go back and apologise to people? Because very rarely do the really big characters or the, the, the Trump-like bullies ever apologise for anything, but, but you do. So, so how, how did you manage to get it right when you'd got it wrong? So I think two things. I mean, one, coming back to that apology, I remember a really bad example. I just arrived in New York and I probably didn't know the culture well enough. Well, I didn't know the culture well enough. Um, and we'd had a terrible situation where a client had come in, had waited 45 minutes in reception, had left. 
And one of the senior managing directors, he phoned me up and said, this is unacceptable. I didn't even know about it. Nobody contacted me, whatever. So I'd phoned up the head of security. And that was the first mistake. I should have gone to see him. So I phoned him up and cut a long story short, the telephone conversation went into a disaster. Um, I mean, both swearing at each other. I mean, it was, it was awful. Um, and I thought, all right, that's a really bad position to be in. So I literally just took off my jacket and I walked down into the basement. And Rick Rosario, the guy, um, head of security, so I walked into his area and uh, he said, you know, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm Peter Eston, it's Ricky. And she looks at me, but she looks at his door. So I don't ask for permission. I go straight into his office and I say, he's not on the phone. So I just knock and I say, look, um, Rick, I'm Peter Eston. Firstly, let me apologise. That was not the way to behave. Anyway, we had the great relationship from there on in. But, but, does it, but, but stay with that. Yeah. It really, it, it takes real courage and humility to admit when you got it wrong. And, yeah. and people go, okay, I'll work with you now. But, yeah. but few do it. Well, why do... Why do people avoid doing it? Is it face saving? I don't. I don't know. I mean, in, in part, I mean, it, it, it. To me, it's sort of. I know I've gone the other side of a line internally, and the guilt is is greater than the suffering of the guilt is greater than the humility of going to apologise to somebody. Yeah. Um, I, I, I suppose for us, some people, if if they feel that the humility would be too great, mm. they, they don't do it. But to my mind, it's a sort of a way of self-learning. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying I don't still make mistakes. I do. No. But I try and learn from the mistakes. Um, and part of the way of learning to me is actually going through what is additional pain of yeah. actually admitting you've made a mistake. Yeah. And, uh, and one, and of, the question, one of the questions I used to yeah. um, ask CEOs, question one, when was the last time you were dead wrong? And if at that stage you get, mm, no, I no, can't think of a time, that's a problem. And then the next one is, okay, so you, you know there's a time you got wrong. How quickly did you realise you'd got it wrong with somebody? Yeah. And how quickly did you apologise and make yeah. up? Uh, and, and so it is, you're right, a lifelong learning, isn't it? Yeah. And look, and, and it's, no, so I think that, I mean, in that particular case, I mean, it was clearly inappropriate behaviour. Um, we were both wrong, if you see what I mean, in the sense of, you know, but that, that's not the point. The point is, is you know, to build bridges, you've got to reach out. And so by reaching out, then he reached out and then actually you work on the solution. And, and you talked about this bridging. Yeah. So you've obviously learned it as a technique lately or yeah. was it before? So tell, tell people about bridging. Well, no, it was, I actually went on a, a, a course, uh, I mean, it's probably 20 years ago now about um, influence. Personal uh, power and influence? Well, it was well, the, the model of the particular course focused on three elements of, of bridging, assertion, um, and uh, persuasion. Yes. And obviously, Moscow, as, assertion could end up in aggression if you're not careful. Yeah. Um, you know, bridging very much that ability to draw people out through listening and, 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 and good questioning. But persuasion, the argument of reason, yeah. and how one uses those. And I would su- suggest to myself that I was heavily dominant around assertion and persuasion yep. and not enough bridging. Uh, and, and I use that balance today in the sense of um, when is there the need to, particularly if I'm chairing meetings, to be more uh, the bridge. Yeah. So to set the agenda, but all the framework, but yeah. then allow the contribution from the room. If it gets out of hand, you maybe need to step in with either some assertion um, or, or 
in some cases, inject some reasoning as yeah. to why. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, to me, that model's always stuck in my head yeah. as, as a very good model. That's great. And, and listening was one thing, you know, we worked together, what, five, six years ago? I mean, yeah, maybe yeah. even longer. Yeah. Um, and it was a, a great honour to work with you as, as your coach at the time. I think I learned more from you than you probably ever learned from me. <laughs> but that, it wasn't about teaching each other. It was more about uh, sharing skills around a coach approach. But... How how are you now as a listener? I mean, you seem very good today, but I mean, generally in all these different committees and things, are, are you a really good listener? Can you really hear what they're saying? So I would say that if I apply myself, I'm better than I was. Yeah. But if I don't get my mindset in the right frame, I can revert to a, a natural... If I get excited about something, if I, I, I get passionate about something, I, I, you know, a lot of that can come out. Yeah. And occasionally, some of that's necessary. Some of that's valuable. In, but at times, it can also be smothering. So it, it's, you no, know, I don't always get it right. No. And, and, but you can, you can read the set telltale signals now. Yeah. I mean, so more often than not, I know I've just blown it. Yeah. And so well, I back when, off. Whenever it leaves the room, you realize. Well, no, often <laughs> instantaneously. You, yeah. you know, you, you can see it in other people's faces far more now. But yeah. you know you've made the mistake. <clears throat> so, for example, if in a meeting I found that I've been asking too many questions or, or being too dominant in the first part of a meeting, yeah. I'll back off. Yeah. And I'll be listening far more, maybe even to the point at which I won't say anything else for the rest of the meeting. Right. Um, or I won't say anything until somebody invites me back in. So that I'm conscious of, of I've perhaps been overly dominant. Yeah. Um, but actually, you don't necessarily always need to say something. No. Well, one of the, um, you do a lot of advisory roles. I mean, and yeah. you're a non-executive director with the uh, Treasury, which yeah. is very yeah. interesting. Um, and quite often, people have got questions for you from your experience. One of the techniques that I was passed on by Nancy Klein and her time to think approach was that, uh, and I, I work this in the coaching as well. Like you might have a question, John, what should I do about this kind of situation you know, with other CEOs? What, what have they done? And I'll go, well, we'll go this way. You go two minutes first. I'll ask you your own question. You go for two minutes. And I'll listen to that to get an understanding of your context and what you already know. And then please ask me the question again, because the mind works best in the presence of a question. So you need actually to be asked by somebody else. And then I'll go for two minutes with my freshest thinking, building on your thinking, and then I'll pass it back to you and ask you the question again until we get to a point where you've got enough and you go, that's great, but, but my next question is this. And, and I don't know whether you've used that as a technique, but it, it works a treat, particularly getting their thoughts. As soon as they say, what should I do? You say, well, what do you think you should do? Have you well, particularly, I mean, particularly in a multi-group meeting, you know, somebody might ask a question and the room goes very quiet. And, and so I can often, I will often have a view. So I may say, look, I mean, certainly I've got a view. That's a great question. Thanks, Jonathan. But look, I'd like to hear from other people first. Good, good. Yeah, and then build on it. Because at the end of the day, particularly if you're in a chair role, and this is the issue, the more you're in a leadership position, the more people will naturally look to you. But if you step in then... You're denying other people Correct. the opportunity. And do you know the, the abbreviation they call it? No, no, go on. The hippo. The hippo. Have you heard this one? No, no. The highest paid person's opinion. <laughs> so if the hippo speaks, yeah. everybody else will wait till the hippo speaks. Yeah. And then they'll follow on and yeah, say. Yeah. And yeah. in fact, when I was ADC to the head of the army, Field Marshal the Lord Inge, uh, Peter Inge, um, there was a very clever guy who was on his army board. And he would 
almost parrot about 10 seconds later just what he'd said. And so it, it would work a treat. He, he, would, he would suck up to this boss and just say almost what he'd said. And they'd go, oh, this guy's really clever. You know, I, I like his opinions. I, I thought, is he really working in that much? He didn't do it all the time. It was only occasionally. But, but yeah, beware that if you are the hippo and those listening, if you're yeah. the hippo, that you don't speak to it. And I think it's yeah, great yeah. that you go, I'd, I'd really like, let's go a minute each. Let's go around the table. And then yeah. I will summarize what I've heard and yeah. give you my freshest thinking about a possible decision, action, yeah. next step, who's accountable yeah. and delivery deadline. But it's also about, you know, the danger of those minute round the tables that can put some people under a lot of pressure. And so that they, it can work in some groups, but I think drawing out on people, but then being aware of somebody who hasn't spoken. Yeah. And then getting a sense of why haven't they spoken? And either because they don't want to speak or they need the invitation. Yeah. And, and again, it's knowing the people well enough that you sort of, you know, um, you know, and so, you know, you haven't had an opportunity to speak. Is there anything you'd like to contribute at this point, yeah. moment? Yeah. Not forcing them. Well, well the, the, kindest way, the kindest yeah. way to do it, because a, a lot of uh, meetings have the introverts in. The introverts actually have some very interesting viewpoints, but they're often the noisy ones speak over, is that the deal is everybody gets their minute. Mm. When it comes to you, if you're not ready, mm. just go pass. Mm. And that's absolutely fine. And you can pass them. But then as chair, I always go back to them and I say, anything else you'd like to add? And they might mm. say no. Mm. Or they might say, yeah, actually, I'm ready now. But mm. it, 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 yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It, it allows that that stops the, the dominance. Now, on these different meetings, you're, you're in a number of worshipful companies. And had we had a, a Labour government, I'm sure they would have gone, get rid of the City of London, get rid of all these worshipful companies, and um, we'll have a, a different way of doing things. How do we make it clear to any government um, or any people who are involved the benefit of worshipful companies, livery companies, and what they do for society and London, if you were to capture it? So I put that in the context, perhaps, of a broader, uh, a broader agenda, and that is that... Um, it's how do you balance legacy with relevance? And I'm a monarchist. <clears throat> I mean, I have a personal philosophy that I think you know, the monarchy, as opposed to the republicanism, is a better model. Right? Um, I think the livery adds a huge amount of value through not only what it has done in education and setting standards, but also what it continues to do in terms of its philanthropy, um, you know, contributing 60, 70 million pounds, as well as running schools, etc. But you have to <clears throat> you have to be relevant. And so part of, I think, one of the shifts the livery is looking at is um, how inclusive is it? Um, how to how and to what extent should people be more aware of what we do? Um, so, I mean, ideologically, you're right. I mean, I think there are certainly members of the Labour Party who would very much like to see the City of London Corporation disappear, potentially the livery structure disappear. I'm not sure how much of that is, is through ignorance, um, because they don't know what it contributes, mm -hmm. um, or how much it sees it as a threat. Yeah. Um, to, 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 to elements. So partly understanding where people are coming from. But no, I mean, to me, uh, I mean, the livery, you know, some 25, 30,000 livery people plus another 30, 40, 50,000 freemen. But it's not just the city of London. 
Mm. You know, there's livery in Exeter, in Bristol, in mm. Edinburgh, in mm. Glasgow, in York, in Shrewsbury, in Chester, you know, uh, all across the country. Sheffield, um, largely in cities, yeah. because that's where effectively it's grown up. <clears throat> and, and it was, ironically, it was the first form of trade unions. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they were guilds. Yeah. They were a yeah. license well, to... Well, like the goldsmiths. Well, the goldsmiths. Yeah. So, I mean, it was your license to do business as if you were a member of the guild. Yeah. And as a member of the guild, not only did you set standards, but you were responsible for educating and creating apprentices. A whole apprenticeship model of, of the middle, middle Ages, you know, grew out of the livery. Um, you know, we let it slide and obviously we're bringing it back again. So, I mean, to my mind, the livery has a huge amount of value to bring to society. We need to sort of look at how we can channel that, in my view, um, um, and, and perhaps not, not deliberately... Um, you know, come across as uh, as sort of being arrogant and, and sort of talking about it in, in in an egotistical way, but actually you know, demonstrating the connectivity that it can bring. And that was, of course, in your year as Lord Mayor of London, you had to help with this connectivity. If you look back on your year as a leader, what were a couple of the highlights for you that you'd, you'd like to share, and also any funny moments that you had? Well, the one, the one, the one funny moment in hindsight now is uh, I won't tell you which very senior gentleman it was uh, around the world, but everywhere I went, everybody wanted to know about Brexit. Because you travelled a lot, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, forty-seven uh, cities in twenty-six countries. But I was everywhere I went, everybody wanted to know about Brexit. And and to be honest with you, it gets a bit boring um, because we all know. I mean, Brexit is sort of like a, a or what had been and probably for the time being continues to be a bit like a sort of a. Uh, um, a soap opera, you know, it's sort of, there's a cliffhanger every week, but actually you look back over the whole year and nothing's really happened. <laughs> um, but, but the, anyway, this particular meeting, um, the very senior person uh, didn't ask me anything about Brexit. We got into cryptocurrencies and future payment mechanisms and all sorts of things. Fascinating meeting. In fact, we overran a bit. Anyway, on the, on, on the way out, um, I'll give you a clue, but I said to him, I said, Governor, you didn't ask me anything about Brexit. And he was a relatively short gentleman, relative to me anyway. Anyway, he stops, looks up at me, and he goes, well, what do you know that I don't? <laughs> <laughs> and that to me summed it all. Um, but in terms of the highlights for me, I mean, certainly the formation of Future.Now, um, which yeah. is a coalition of businesses and civic organisations also working with government. Um, I mean, we're over 100. Well, no, we're over 70 in the coalition now. And you're the chairman. Did you so I've agreed it? to be... So I, I founded it and brought businesses together and agreed to carry on. Was this on. while you were Lord Mayor? Yeah, um, to, agreed to carry on to chair it for a, at least another year. Um, and it very much is a business-to-business -business coalition, um, focusing on boosting and, and motivating people across the country to, to lift themselves in terms of their digital skills. And partly because on the one hand, we talk about a digital crisis, you know, 53% of the population don't have the five essential digital skills that government have outlined. For example, you know, one in five of us don't know how to do a Google search. Mm. So that poses a challenge. And at the same time, business uh, across the board, across the country, is saying we don't have enough skilled people to tackle some of the emerging technologies and, and digitization of our industries. 
So it's both a civic and societal issue in terms of avoiding creating a divided society, mm -hmm. but also an enabling one of, of boosting performance. Yeah. So we've, we've brought a coalition together at the moment, as I say, just over 70 organizations and growing, well done. saying, how do, we, how do we really develop a campaign around motivating, but also facilitating change and curating this vast array of material? We've got a huge amount of material. Um, so to my mind, that's, that's a living, breathing uh, um, um, uh, organization, which I'm excited. It's continuing to, to grow and it's continuing to sort of add value yeah. um, and, and you know, to move the needle on, on digital skills. Well done, though. You left a, 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 huge, a huge positive impact on uh, the city and indeed the country. Um, and then going from the sort of the highs of something like that to, the human side of everybody, we've all had some, some dark days and some difficult times. If you look back on your life, what's been one of those dark moments, really difficult moments in your life? And what did you learn from it that's made you the better inspiring leader you are today? I mean, that's a tough question. I mean, I, I think probably one of the darkest moments was I, I, I was working for um, Citigroup at the time. I'd been working for them for about eight years. And I'd managed to, I was playing a global role, but I'd managed to migrate that role from uh, London, uh, from New York back to London because family had moved back to London. But the onset of the financial crisis really started to emerge in 2006, 2007. Um, I mean, it didn't manifest itself until fourth quarter, 08, but the early signs of it really were there. And... Uh, and for me, one of my sort of the darkest days was was the challenge of having to virtually go back to New York and live in New York with the family still back here uh, in the UK. Uh, and this construct of, of having to take costs out and, and nobody really knew because, again, we were just our own piece. Nobody knew the scale of actually what was happening in all the other businesses, which I'm mm. sure were having similar issues. And it was a very lonely period. Um, both in terms of from a, a leadership perspective, um, but I also got isolated from the family uh, quite a bit uh, because spending so much time in New York. Um, and it was actually the, the trigger. Well, the trigger came from somebody who I didn't know phoning me up out of the blue as a headhunter saying, would I be interested in joining Barclays? Mm. And, and it was one of those moments where I, 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 mean, I did take the call and I did follow it up. I did ultimately move to Barclays. And in some ways, that was the light that came out of it. Mm. Um, I mean, normally I don't respond to headhunters. It's not a negative, yeah. but, you know, if you're enjoying a job and getting on with it. But it was a pretty dark period for about a year um, and getting quite despondent. Um, and you know, children were sort of in their, um, in, uh, in their teens. So there was a lot of focus on them. And Lindy was doing that appropriately. Mm. Um, but I was fortunate. I, I mean, I got a call and um, and in many ways, although I jumped from the frying pan, as it were, into the fire, <laughs> I joined Barclays on the 1st of October 2008. <laughs> I can't think of a, uh, a period in history where, where, where actually one literally has jumped from the frying pan to the fire. But, um, but I mean, ultimately, you know, I had a 10-year career with Barclays, yeah. which, uh, again, um, for me, I, I learned a lot out of that. And yeah. It gave me an opportunity. And before we sort of wrap up in a moment with one of your top tips, what would you say in your business career have been some of the, the highlights? So, you know, the things that you've 
enjoy? What's given you the greatest pleasure and fulfillment? Um, any of the roles, Barclays or anywhere? Two things. Uh, one, Barclays particularly, I think working with some of the young, particularly younger people, some of the customer service people on the technology, some of giving them the license to innovate yeah. um, and just seeing the, what freedom creates in terms of capability. Uh, I mean, to me in the business world, that was fantastic. Mm. Uh, and it's really what motivates me largely in a lot of the work I do, um, whether it's on-site youth zones. I mean, you go and spend time with some of these young kids, these teenagers, you know, from some of the deprived areas of, of London. And, you know, they've got huge potential, mm. but haven't had the opportunity. Yeah, and if you can connect the opportunity, uh, um, whether it's giving them some work experience or or it's a little bit of coaching or connecting them with somebody uh, or simply being there, mm. I think, but just being there and showing an interest. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I've been fortunate enough to know people like Charles Mindenhall and Bill Holroyd. You know, Bill set, has really set up Onside Youth Zones and Charles has led a lot of it in London. And, and to be part of that and to help it grow, I mean, it has been so inspiring. Mm. Um, and, you know, that, that sense of being able just to sort of put a little bit in yeah. and seeing a lot come out, yeah. it's fantastic. Well, it's, a, it's a bit like replaying down to your childhood with the, the Lord yeah. Mayor at the time and, yeah. and how he reached down and gave the chance to, to, to see a vision of a future. And that's been something you've done in your various roles, give people a clear vision. So final top tip. What would be your final top tip to, to up-and-coming, inspiring leaders of, of, you know, just something practical and pragmatic they could do to be a better leader? So I, I connect it to, you know, what is your vision? You know, if it's really, do you have a purpose? Do you, do you get a real sense of who you are and what it is? And therefore, what do you want to do? And then the tip is, is how to uh, communicate that vision. Creating, uh, creating the inspiration, igniting the fire, yeah. but ultimately igniting it in other people yeah. so that they come with you. Mm. And a fire can be quite frightening. So I use igniting a fire in the right way yeah. in the sense that if you ignite the fire as an engine of growth, great. Yeah. But if you ignite a catastrophe... <laughs> You, you, you know, people... California people, bushfire. Yeah. yeah, people, all oh, the Sydney fires at the moment. Yeah, people see that fire and they think that's danger and they, 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 yeah. they come away. So to my mind, it's that tip of, you know, injecting some passion and some energy and some vision, but actually doing it in a way that takes people with you and ignites their fire and the belief that they can contribute to that agenda. Brilliant. Peter, we could chat for hours. Um, but thank you Pleasure. so much for being very authentic, very open, and, and also just touching on but a bit of the things that you do. It's been really interesting. I wish you success in the many things thank you're involved you. in, and look after your family this Christmas. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank Pleasure. you very much. So, now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, 
get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.